If you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to continue looking at verse 13 this morning, which will serve as the second of a three or four part introduction concerning evangelism 101. And that's the focus of this passage and of the ones that are to follow. You see, Peter, in this letter, has been describing for us what our lives ought to look like as those who have been made by God's mercy and power elect exiles, as those who have been chosen by God for salvation, and yet are therefore also experiencing increasing rejection here on earth. What are our lives as believers and followers of Jesus and as those who call upon God as our Father? What are our lives supposed to be? As those who have been born again, what effect, what effect are we supposed to have on the world? And what effect are our lives supposed to have in the lives of those who do not know Christ? Well, Peter's already told us what our lives as believers are supposed to be back in verses 4 through 11 of chapter 2. We are, believing, we are to be living stones, growing closer to Christ and closer to each other in the service and worship of the Lord. We're to be a people of God's own possession who are beholding firsthand and then proclaiming God's saving excellencies and his mighty deeds. And we are to be sojourners and exiles living purely in an impure land. That's what we as believers are. And what effect are we to have? The answer that Peter gives in the passages set before us is that our lives are to have a saving and sanctifying effect. In short, we are to be leading the lost to Jesus Christ. As Matthew 28, 19 states, we are to be making disciples as we go about our everyday lives. But how? But how are we supposed to do that? Not through marketing schemes or through community organizing techniques. We are to be leading the lost to Jesus Christ by the power of our transformed lives. That's what Peter teaches from chapter 2, verse 12, all the way to the end of chapter 3. Through living lives of such stunning righteousness, reverence, and submission, we are to so adorn the doctrine of our Savior to such a degree that those who are lost are compelled to ask the question, why are we so different? And we can tell them the answer with gentleness and respect. The answer is Jesus. He's the one who makes the difference. Isn't that glorious and humbling to realize? God often uses the lives and devotion of His people to lead the lost to Jesus Christ. That's shocking. When's the last time that you heard that presented as one of the most effective evangelistic tools and techniques? Live such a stunningly devoted Christian life that people start asking you why you do the things you do and why you are the way you are. We don't hear that as an essential part of evangelism anymore. I remember when I took college classes and they taught on evangelism, you know, they had different techniques you were supposed to use. Get on an elevator and you turn to the person in the elevator and you say, are you going up? And they say yes to the third floor. And you say no. Are you going all the way up? 
We laugh. (laughs) This is what we're teaching as effective evangelistic techniques? No. God's Word lays out something far more effective. Live such a stunningly devoted Christian life that people start asking you why you do the things you do and why you are the way you are. Why don't we hear that? Why don't we think about that when it comes to evangelism more? I think there's two reasons. There's two reasons. First, I think it's because we are accepting a wrong definition to evangelism. And second, we are avoiding personal guilt concerning evangelism. And that's why we kind of a whole, we kind of pass by that idea of having a life that looks like something that causes people to ask questions. So first, I think we're accepting a wrong definition to evangelism. In our minds, we've made evangelism something that only skilled extroverts can do by defining evangelism as this. Talking to people you've never met before about their need for Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but even I have a hard time talking to people that I've never met before about anything in life, let alone their greatest need in life of accepting Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And so if that's what evangelism is, if evangelism is talking to people you've never met before about Jesus, then evangelism is going to be something that is rarely ever done and ever happens for the average believer. But listen, evangelism is not talking to people you've never met before about Jesus. Evangelism is talking to people about Jesus, period, whether you've never met them before or not. See, when we start delegating in our own minds and hearts evangelism to the area of people that we don't know, then we stop thinking about evangelism in the lives of the people that we do know, like our own spouses, our own children, our own co-workers, our own classmates, our own neighbors, and our own friends. And this is an epidemic that has overtaken the American church today. I don't ask you whether you are ashamed of the gospel when you're talking about it to someone you don't know. I want to know whether you're ashamed of the gospel when it actually affects relationships that you care about. Your children, your grandchildren, your parents, your friends, your neighbors. Or do you sacrifice the gospel on the altar of you maintaining a relationship that you want, not the relationship that God wants for them? This is serious. Serious. These are the people that God most wants us to be reaching. These are the people that we have the most opportunity to reach. And these are the very people that Scripture draws our attention to most. We all understand we need to be about this issue of evangelism. Amen. And this is where Scripture tells us to begin. When's the last time you talked to your children about their need for Jesus, whether they're young and still in the house or whether they're old and they have their own homes? When's the last time you talked to your own kids about the eternal realities of God's holiness and man's sin and Christ's work and their needed response? When's the last time you talked with someone that you work with about Jesus that you see literally almost every single day? See, the more we imagine evangelism in our minds to be something that we do with people that we don't know, the more we neglect evangelism with the people that we do know, the very people that God wants us to be reaching, the very people that Peter is going to start mentioning in the verses ahead of us. 
See our own spouses, children, co-workers, neighbors, classmates, and friends. They are the very people before whom we have the most opportunity to reach, to live such stunningly compelling, attractive lives of devotion to Jesus Christ that compels them to ask the reason for why we do the things we do and why we are the way we are. The people in your family, the people on your street, the people in your workplace, the people in your school, and sometimes the people in the pew right next to you right now. These people are your mission field. You don't have to look for your mission field. God gives you your mission field. They're not my mission field. I don't know them, but you do. And these are the people that God is calling you to speak to and reach. God has designed everyday evangelism to happen primarily through relationships with people that we know. This is how we are to be making disciples as we go about our everyday lives. We don't often think of evangelism that way because, again, I think, we've, as I've said, uh, we are giving a wrong definition to evangelism. I think the second reason why we don't view evangelism the way Peter does here in in, uh, 1 Peter is because we're avoiding personal guilt about evangelism. See, if evangelism is what Peter says, if it's the natural byproduct of a properly devoted Christian life in love with Jesus, where opportunities to share the gospel naturally arise and are seized upon, then that can make me feel guilty. Especially if no one is noticing anything different about my life. But... If I can make evangelism something optional that I do, rather than something essential to who I am, then my guilt is completely alleviated, right? So what if no one's ever asked me why I'm so different? That's okay, because evangelism has nothing to do with my personal life anyway. Well, God completely disagrees. (laughs) Peter teaches the exact opposite. In fact, as we're seeing in these verses, the first emphasis that God wants us to have when we consider evangelism is our own personal lives. God wants us to start asking the hard questions that we often don't want to ask ourselves, such as, when is the last time someone came up to me and asked me why I'm different? Why, am, why I'm so full of hope and assurance and peace? When's the last, someone, so, last time someone knew that I was a Christian? Because I've already responded to a circumstance or because of how I'm living. These are the questions God wants us to ask when we begin to think about evangelism, and these are the very questions that we don't like to think about. And so let's make evangelism something that's formal, external, and disassociated from me and my everyday life as much as possible. I think this is why Peter, (laughs) I think that's why Peter, teaching from verse 12 into the end of chapter 3, strikes Uh, What he's teaching strikes so many Christians as odd. It's because we've made a habit of accepting the wrong definition of evangelism in order to avoid personal guilt. But nevertheless, God's word stands. The most effective tool in your toolbox to direct the attention to the lost to Jesus Christ and his word is not an elevator trip. It's the compelling power of your own transformed life. And as we began to see last week, the virtue that we are to develop, the lifestyle characteristic that God says is the, is the most surprising, the most convincing, the most unusual to an unsaved soul is the stunning characteristic of a submissive spirit. That's what we saw at the beginning of verse 13, where we read the words, Be subject for the Lord's sake. Six words. A heart without Christ is a heart without submission. And that's the world that we live in. It's a world, if you've taken a look at your nightly news lately, it's a world in rebellion. A world in rebellion against God and against every single authority structure that He has created. 
It's just like what the Bible teaches. The unsaved world is filled with people who reject and despise authority. In their rebellion, they live lives marked by division and dissension that causes constant friction with everyone around them. This is what it means to be lost. This is what it means to be enslaved to sin, enslaved to a spirit of despising and disregarding authority. A heart without Christ is a heart without submission. But a heart that knows Christ is a heart that knows how to submit. And that's where we as believers get to shine as lights in this world. In the midst of a world and a society that rages and rebels against their parents, that rages and rebels against marriage, that rages and rebels against employers, that rages and rebels against spiritual leaders and against governing officials, because they're ultimately in rebellion against God, we get to live lives markedly different than theirs. Lives characterized by submission to all those authorities for the Lord's sake. We seek to put ourselves under them, Because we know that they are all under Christ. For the glory, honor, and reputation of Jesus, we seek to live lives that are marked by stunning submissiveness. This is the beginning, the very beginning of Evangelism 101. And that's why Peter, in verses 13 through 17, is going to make sure that we know exactly what biblical submission looks like, because it's so essential. Last week, at the beginning of verse 13, we saw the command and motive for submission, where Peter said, be subject for the Lord's sake. This morning... So last week we covered six words. I have good news for you. This morning we're covering four. (laughs) I have never, by the way, I have never spent so much time studying a topic that I will say so little about this morning. (laughs) There is so much to study on this subject. But this morning... If the Lord wills, we're going to consider the next four words of 1 Peter 2.13 regarding the extent of submission. And then in future weeks, we'll look at the example, purpose, and principle of submission. So, the command, motive, extent, example, purpose, and principle of biblical submission in the aim of accomplishing evangelism 101, everyday evangelism. So, with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 13 through 17. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these words. For context, I'm going to start reading verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of God who pleads our cause and redeems us by giving us life according to his promise. Let's pray. 
Father, I ask for grace. Father, we ask for grace. You would lead us on level ground by Your Spirit through Your Word today. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts willing to obey, full of faith and assurance in Your Word. Give us zeal to apply Your Word to our lives that Christ might be honored and that Christ might be more highly prized and worshipped in the relationships in which we live. Give us grace, Father, I pray, this morning to read, to understand, to obey Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after introducing to us the topic of everyday evangelism in verse 12, and after showing us the command and motive of biblical submission at the beginning of verse 13, the Apostle Peter then presents to us next the extent of submission. That's the next phrase in verse 13. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to what? To every human institution. Now let's think through that phrase slowly this morning. What does God mean when He says be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution? Well, I think we're greatly helped by asking ourselves three questions out of this phrase. Three questions. What's assumed? What's essential? And what's implied? Okay, so what's assumed about the extent of our submission? These are the three points we're going to work through today. What's assumed about the extent of our submission? Second, what is essential to the extent of our submission? And then third, what's implied from the extent of our submission. What's assumed, what's essential, what's implied. So first, let's clarify the assumed extent of submission that's being addressed here by Peter. There's something that Peter assumes here in this verse when he tells us to submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution, and that is this, that we are only to submit to those institutions that God has put over us, right? That is assumed behind Peter's command. This command only applies to the authorities that God has put over you. If God hasn't put an authority over you, you don't have to submit to it. Now, I know that's like not rocket science, but it needs to be addressed, right? For example, children. You're not commanded to submit to other parents, You're only commanded by God to put yourself in subjection to your parents, to the parents that God has put over you. You don't have to fulfill every parent's expectations on planet Earth. You only need to, under the Lord, be subject to the expectations that your parents are putting over you, right? Wives, you're not commanded to submit to other husbands, You're only commanded by God to be subject to your husband, to the husband that God has put over you. Employees, you're not commanded to submit to other employers. That would be really weird. You're only commanded by God to be subject to your employer, to the employer that God has put over you. Citizen, you're not commanded to submit to other nations' governments. You're only commanded by God to be subject to your government. 
to the government God has put over you. And believer, you're not commanded to submit to other pastors and elders. You're only commanded in Scripture by God to be subject to your pastor and elders as those who must keep an account and watch over your souls to the spiritual leaders that God has put over you. All this is assumed, right? This command to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution only applies to the institutions that God has put over you. So I wanted to get that out of the way so you understand it. So that's the assumed extent of submission. Now let's consider the essential extent of submission, and this is where we'll spend a majority of our time this morning. In other words, what are those human institutions that Peter refers to that we're supposed to submit to? And really, to start us down that path of discovery, what are the essential institutions that we are being called on by God to be subject to here? Well, the answer is found by taking a closer look at that word for institution here, which is katesis in the Greek. And it means, at a very general level, something that is created, formed, or established. But what's interesting is that when you dig a little bit deeper, every time this word katesis is used in the Greek, it always refers to something that God has created, formed, or established. In other words, if we're being consistent with the usage with the rest of the New Testament, the phrase human institution literally means what's been created by God for mankind. So a human institution is that which has been created by God for the good of human society. And that helps us quite a bit when we're determining what is the essential extent of submission. Because now we're not asking this question, what is every institution or organization that any human has ever created in society? We're not asking that question. Now we're simply asking the question, what are the institutions that God has created for the good of society and for the flourishing of humanity? And you know what? We don't have to look very hard to find out. Peter, in this letter, touches on all five of them. Very briefly, very, very briefly, we have the state or the government mentioned in chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. We then have business or commerce addressed in chapter 2, verse 18. We have marriage mentioned in 1 Peter 3, verse 1. We have the family implied, at least, in chapter 3, verse 6. And then we see the church addressed in chapter 5, verse 5. So these are five institutions that God has created for the restraint of evil and for the flourishing of human society. State, business, marriage, family, and church. And when it comes to each of these institutions, we see Peter give the same command in these passages over and over and over again repeatedly. Be subject. Be subject. Be subject. Be subject. As we even read here, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, if we're to do that, right, if we're not just to read it, but if we're to put this into practice, if we're to order ourselves properly under these five essential institutions for the good of society, it would be helpful to know what the role of each one of those five essential institutions are so that we can order and arrange ourselves under them according to the will of God. In other words, it would be good to have at least a basic working knowledge of biblical sociology, of how society ought to function, and how these God-given institutions should operate distinctly and yet in tandem together for the good of mankind. So what are the distinct roles that each one of these five God-given institutions possess? Well, I found a brief article this week written by a man named Ralph Dolinger that helpfully articulates 
uh, these roles these f- of these five institutions rather succinctly. I'm going to use this phraseology because it's so brief and helpful. Okay, So as briefly as I can make it. The purpose of the state is first to moralize. right? It is to punish evil and to reward good among mankind. Essentially, the purpose of the state is to police. The purpose of business is to commercialize to provide daily sustenance and goods for mankind. The purpose of marriage is to actualize, to bring into being a God-honoring partnership of pleasure, a partnership which often leads to children, but always to point to Christ, at least among believers. The purpose of the family is to catechize, that is, to raise up and to educate godly Moral children that will be a blessing to society and to its greater institutions. And then finally, the purpose of the church is to evangelize, to take the word of Christ, and as Mark 16, 15 says, proclaim it to all creation. Which, by the way, it's interesting, is the exact same word as institution here. Catesis. Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And therefore, we are to proclaim his gospel to all catesis. And so the church really is unique when you start looking at the institutions that God has created for society. Because while all five of these societal institutions are equal and yet separate, the church has the unique authority given to it by God himself to speak his truth into every sphere of society and life. In other words, in its proclamation of Christ's word, the church will often serve, if you will, as society's moral conscience, reminding the human institutions that God has ordained of what is right and what is wrong and how we all are to be getting along. And so if marriages or families in society are not behaving the way that God has designed, guess what institution has been created by God to speak God's truth into those situations? Answer the church. And if businesses are behaving in a way that aren't behaving in a way that God has designed either towards employers or towards employees, guess what institution should be speaking God's truth into those situations? The answer is the church. And if government isn't behaving in the way that God has designed, guess what institution will be called on to speak up for what is right and what is wrong? Answer the church. Because that's why the church exists. To proclaim God's truth to all of creation, in season and out of season. To reprove, rebuke, and exhort from the word of God with all of authority to to the result that we often serve as society's conscience by reminding both ourselves and all men what is right and what is wrong and how God intends us to all get along. And it's really that last institution that I mentioned of government that the church has really butted heads with quite a bit throughout history. Because while the church is unique in its command to proclaim, you could say the state is unique in its propensity to corrupt. We see this throughout history. It doesn't take long before the state starts to swerve out of its God-ordained lane and tries to swallow up the other institutions that God has created In fact, Revelation 13 pictures the Antichrist's future authoritarian government being just like that. 
like a dragon that is seeking to consume authority and responsibility over everything. And we see that draconic consuming tendency in government even today, do we not? If you've paid attention, we do. (laughs) Right? We see the state consuming the role of business and commerce. And to what result? Socialism and communism, where businesses and consumers have no freedom. We see the state consuming the role of family. And what result do you get there? You get a nanny state where parents are losing their authority. We see the state consuming the role of marriage. And what do you get there? You see a redefinition of marriage and of gender and of sexuality. We see the state consuming the role of the church. And what would you get there? You could get the Holy Roman Empire. You could get Sharia law. Or in the case of our modern context... You could get immoral indoctrination of children by hijacking educational facilities like schools and libraries. In America, we have been blessed beyond measure that in the providence of God, our government started off, if you will, as a relatively small dragon. Further constrained by a constitution of checks and balances that reflects this biblical sociology and this understanding of the separation of institutions and their proper spheres of authority. However, over the years, the roles and responsibilities that have been delegated to these other societal institutions have slowly been consumed. Until now, as Thomas Jefferson said, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and for government to gain ground. And so the church is unique. I say all of that to say the church is unique in its command to proclaim, and the government is unique in its propensity to corrupt. And so, this is why the church, which often serves as the moral conscience of society, often butts heads with government. It's because the church, through its proclamation of God's word, often must remind the state, that's not your role. This is what's right, this is what's wrong, and this is how we ought to to get along and the government does not like hearing that (laughs) but nevertheless the church has been given the authority from god to do just that and it will often be the responsibility of believers and the role of the church to speak god's truth to all men even those in state power and to remind the government of what its role and what its morality ought to be you see this in many places of scripture by the way for example you see it with john the baptist in mark chapter 6 verses 14 through 20 you see this with Jesus in Luke 13:32 addressing Herod. You see this with Paul in Acts 22 and Acts 25. All of them through their proclamation of God's truth reminding the state of what its role really is and what its morality ought to be. And uniquely as American Christians, can I just say that one of the ways that we can do that and we can speak truth to our government is by voting for representatives who have the right view of morality and of society as outlined in Scripture so that those in government can punish those who do evil and reward those who do good and encourage government to behave properly in its proper sphere of authority just as God desires. That's why we as Christians in America who have been given a voice in government codified in written documents should seek to elect not only societal leaders, but listen to this, moral leaders also. Leaders who don't call evil good and good evil. 
but rather who agree with God, at least in a broad sense, of what is morally right and what is morally wrong. And so the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, support of the truth, according to 1 Peter 3.15. Sorry, I slipped into King James. Was the authority, the church has the authority and role from God to speak to each one of these institutional spheres, to speak into the institutional sphere of government, business, marriage, and family. And so I wanted to make that clear. However, okay, here we go. Now here's the other side of the coin. However, Paul's emphasis here in 1 Peter chapter 2 is that Christians not only have a role, but they also have a responsibility to subject themselves to these institutions also. We have a role and a responsibility as believers to both speak and submit. And we are to be faithfully fulfilling them both. We like to focus on one or the other. Faithfulness to Christ means both. As we'll see next week, whether the institution is good, bad, or indifferent, we are to be faithfully proclaiming Christ's truth And we are to be fervently demonstrating Christ's character, particularly his stunning submissiveness to God first and then to the authorities that God has given us. We are to follow in Christ's footsteps. As long as these institutions are not commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands, we are to be subject to these essential institutions of our state, our business, our marriage, our family, and our church authorities for the Lord's sake. This is the assumed and essential aspect of submission. Now let me briefly finish with this. The implied extent of submission. So we've looked at the assumed extent of submission. It's the authorities that God has put over you. We looked at the essential extent of submission, that there are five very clear authorities that God has instituted among men that we ought to submit to. Now let's look at the implied extent of submission, and this is where I want to clarify some things. In other words, I want to bring out something that's implied here in this text, and here it is. Peter did not mention the importance of stunning submissiveness so that we could say, okay, these five, right? State, business, marriage, family, and church. I'll be submissive in all of these areas, but now I can be a rebel rouser absolutely everywhere else, right? So I'm going to join the Lions Club here in West Liberty, and like a good old lion, I'll start a pride war, right? Or, you know what, there's that quilting club, and I'm going to join that quilting club, and we ain't going to be sewing, we're going to be throwing, right? Because I get to not be submissive, at least there, right? Is that what Peter is mentioning? Is that what he's meaning here? The answer is no, no. By mentioning these five institutions... These essential institutions. Peter isn't saying that we get to be rebellious and resistant to authority wherever we find it anywhere else. No, what Peter's implying here is that this stunning submissiveness ought to be the characteristic default mindset of our lives. No matter what situation we are operating under. Because remember, the Christian life is primarily not about what we do. It's primarily about what? Who we are. Who we are in our hearts. 
towards authority. That's what Peter's driving at. We are pilgrims and exiles who are here to exhibit the goodness of Christ wherever we go. And so if you're born again, and if you call upon God as Father through faith in Jesus Christ, and if you, if you view Jesus as the one who is seated in heaven, as the one over all power and dominion and authorities, then you ought to be known as someone who is agreeable. You ought to be known as someone who is humble. You ought to be known as someone who easily orders themselves in society under whatever rules the organization that you're currently a part of operates by. You ought to be marked as that type of person. Why? Because we want to show Jesus to a watching world by our words and by our actions. This is the implied extent of our submission. It extends to our very heart, to whatever to whatever organization we might find ourselves in. I was hoping to get to the example of submission, but that'll have to be for next week. It'll be good times. But as we consider the issue of the extent of submission, I want us all to ask ourselves this question. What's the extent of my Christ-like submission? Not asking you whether people around you think that you are a person of subjection. I want you to know whether God in heaven views you as a submissive person. What's the extent of my Christ-like submission? Has my subjection to the authorities that God has given me extended as far as Peter implies here? Has it extended to my very heart? Regardless of what I might be doing on the outside, what is the posture, listen to this, what is the posture of my heart to the authorities that God has given me? Do I view rules and laws generally as good things for the ordering of a fallen society? Or do I chafe in friction against those things wherever I find them? What is the posture of my heart? For man looks at the outward appearance, but man looks but God looks where? God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What's the posture of my heart, children? What's the posture of your heart towards the parents that God has given you? I don't know whether you look like your subject when their eyes are on you. <laughs> what's the posture of your heart towards your parents? Believers, what's the posture? Husbands, wives, what's the posture of your heart towards the spouse that God has given you? Not whether you look like you're fulfilling certain marriage roles or not. What's the posture of your heart? What's the posture of your heart towards the supervisor that God has given you, employer? Not whether you're able to check off your work requirements for the day. What's the posture of your heart towards your boss? What's the posture of your heart towards the spiritual leaders God has given you? What's the posture of your heart towards the government and government officials God has given you? 
Because all these things that I just mentioned, whether we like to admit it or not, are good and perfect gifts sent down from us from above, as James 1.17 says. Down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Believers, your parents are a gift. Are a gift. Believers, your spouse is a gift. Your boss is a gift. Your elders are a gift. Your government is a gift. Is that reflected in the attitude of your heart towards them? Does your submissiveness extend that far? May God give us grace this morning to repent where needed and to have hearts of stunning submissiveness to this extent for the honor, the glory, and the reputation of our Lord and for the salvation of the lost. This is the word of God from 1 Peter 2.13 which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until our Lord overall returns. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray that we as believers would lean on you in desperate dependency to be faithful in both our role and in our responsibility to speak the truth and to be subject for the Lord's sake. Give us grace towards this end, Father, I pray. And help us to exhibit the life of Christ in the midst of this world so that those who walk in rebellion against You might see the blessedness of submission to authority beginning with the authority of Your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Jesus' name. Amen.